they wanted some justice for Stephen, of course they did. But the only way they're going to get it is themselves. Summonses have been issued against four individuals considered to be responsible for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. I don't think what happened today is, is fair at all. There was two fingers up to everybody who wanted justice. I was scared of thinking about Stephen. In fact, I was trying to avoid the subject. It wasn't a gamble, it was a risk. I mean, it was a calculated risk. I thought, what will happen if this goes wrong? I'm Stephen Wright, and this is the Mail Plus true crime series, Stephen Lawrence, the murder that shamed Britain. Episode two, two fingers up at justice. In May and June 1993, the Metropolitan Police arrested brothers Neil and Jamie Acourt, Gary Dobson, David Norris and Luke Knight on suspicion of murdering Stephen Lawrence. At the time, they were aged either 16 or 17. Gary Dobson was first arrested at his home on Phineas Pet Road early on May the 7th, 1993. Detectives searched their homes and took away items of clothing and a number of weapons as evidence. At the Acourt's home, a knife was found behind a TV set. In a padlocked room, a Gurkha-type knife was discovered. There were knives found in Jamie's bedroom and an airgun-type revolver. Officers later found a large knife in Dobson's girlfriend's bedroom. When David Norris was arrested and questioned a few days later, also at Bromley Police Station, he refused to answer questions on the advice of his solicitor. Neil Acourt and Luke Knight were identified by Stephen's friend, Dwayne Brooks, and the pair were charged with murder. They denied the charges. The police now had to build a case against the suspects so they could be tried. Though officers had the positive identification by Dwayne and a number of witness statements, they needed something more concrete so they began to look for incriminating forensic evidence on the items seized. But nothing was found. On the 29th of July, 1993, the Crown Prosecution Service announced they were dropping the charges against Acourt and Knight, saying the evidence from Duane alone was insufficient to build a case for trial. You know, at the end of the day, we want justice done, and it felt like a significant injustice. Nazir Afsal was a senior lawyer with the CPS at the time. But we can't manufacture evidence. The evidence was what was provided by the first police investigation. The view taken was that it did not reach anything like the standard required to be able to prosecute somebody. And so it was uh, disheartening that despite what intelligence people had, and intelligence is not evidence. People seem to know who was responsible, but the wall of silence, the lack of any forensic evidence, all of that meant that there was just not enough evidence to get these individuals prosecuted, and that was um, very disappointing. For the Lawrence family and their supporters, it was a devastating blow. If you can imagine, you know, having thought that they might get some justice, having that not even going to court to discuss it, 
That must have been devastating for him. And Mr Brooks, must have been devastating for him. Ex-Met Detective Chief Inspector Clive Driscoll came to know the Lawrence family well. They felt the police hadn't done a particularly good job. Worse still, they, the police hadn't done a good job because Stephen was a black lad. It was only a few months after Stephen's murder, but already there was a feeling, certainly amongst the Lawrence family and their supporters, that the suspects were above the law. Relations between the Lawrences and the detectives working on the case were already strained. The CPS decision to drop the charges against two of the key suspects made matters even worse. It was against this backdrop of mounting cynicism about the Met's inquiry and allegations of racism within the force that the Lawrences decided to launch a landmark private prosecution against those they believed responsible for Stephen's murder. Summonses have been issued against four individuals considered to be responsible for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. The police will act upon those summons and those four individuals will be arrested and brought before the court in due course. Private prosecutions are very unusual in criminal cases like these, so you'd be forgiven for not knowing much about how they work. I asked Nazir Assel to explain. The um, Lawrence family, Neville and Doreen, supported by a legal team, decided to become the equivalent of the Crown Prosecution Service. They become the private prosecutor and they take out a summons to bring these men to court and then they were able um, to present the evidence at a trial before a jury as if they were the Crown Prosecution Service. And how unusual was a private prosecution at that stage, Nazir? I'd never come across it in terms of homicides. There had been loads of private prosecutions for other offences, but I was not aware of any private prosecution for a homicide at that time. The Lawrences launched their private prosecution in September 1994. It was now a year and a half since Stephen's murder, and they'd had enough of waiting. But for their prosecution to be successful, they needed more evidence. Professor Angela Gallup is a leading forensic scientist who back in the mid-90s had recently left the Home Office's Forensic Science Service to set up an independent consultancy. The Lawrence's legal team asked her to review the available forensic evidence. Essentially, what they wanted me to do was to go to the Metropolitan Police Lab where the scientists had been looking for evidence but hadn't found anything really that you could put before a court and check everything that they'd done and do anything else extra that I thought might be helpful and might sort of help to clarify some things or produce some evidence of some kind. Angela's job was only made more difficult by the lack of a body to examine. Stephen had been buried by his family in a then-secret location, so Angela was limited to working with the items gathered by the Met in the wake of Stephen's murder. I started with a wider search for blood on the suspect's clothing, and then I turned my attention to textile fibres, because it was one or two fibres that they'd found, as I said, didn't amount to much on their own. So I decided to go into those in slightly more detail, and I did a couple of things. I had a look at some items that hadn't really been examined in detail for fibres that could have come from the suspect's clothing. 
And I also started looking for fibres that might have been transferred in the other direction from Stephen's clothes to the suspect. And that hadn't really been considered much in the initial investigation because it was recognised that after the murder, the suspects apparently ran off. And and when you're active and wearing clothing that's just picked up fibres from someone else's clothing, they are more likely to drop off and be lost forever. And I thought Stephen was wearing a pair of green trousers which had brightly coloured individual fibres as constituents and I thought these would be quite easy to spot and certainly something you know I could certainly do within the time scale so I had a look at their lower clothing for these green fibres but didn't find anything. On top of this in the mid-90s DNA technology was still in its infancy. I mean it was not really comparable with what we can do today. This meant that Angela's search was limited. You needed quite a lot of material to get a result out of it in those days. It wasn't until the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, that actually there were some new techniques which meant that you could look at really tiny amounts of material. And so we were left really in the same position that there was no real scientific evidence. But on the other hand, I made the point that this wasn't a point for the defence. Of course, at that stage, the Lawrence family were very critical of how the police had handled the investigation. What was your opinion of how the forensic side of the inquiry had been handled? Had it been done in a thorough and professional way? For the standards of the time, I think that they had done all of the normal things. You would want to focus on fibres that had been transferred from the suspects to Stephen for the reasons that I've explained. So I think that the emphasis of the investigation was probably pretty much what anybody would have done at the time. And as I said, in those days, I think we didn't understand so much that, you know, as we do now, that every contact leaves a trace. We didn't understand how true that was. And we felt that, well, in this circumstance or in that circumstance, it might not because, well, we're much less likely to accept that these days. You know, in terms of what you saw, you know, the crime exhibits, the clothes, what had been stored by the police, did it give you hope at that stage that down the line that forensic science could provide a, a vital breakthrough in this case? I think that I thought it was just one of those cases where forensic science, because of the nature of the case, because it appeared to have been quite a quick affair and because, you know, there were only two injuries. It just felt as though it might be one of those cases where actually, although you might be lucky and find something equally, you might not. And so I think I probably thought at that time, that's awful, but it's just one of those cases where we probably are not going to be able to help much. Without any concrete forensic evidence, the Lawrence family's private prosecution was on shaky ground. They were once again relying on the testimony of Dwayne Brooks and a few other witnesses. It hadn't been enough for the CPS and it was unlikely to convince a judge and a jury at trial. But Doreen and Neville Lawrence felt so failed by the Met that they were determined to press ahead. They felt very let down by the police, but worse still, they thought the police had been obstructive and and indeed lied to them so you know i can see that they must have felt you know one they wanted some justice for steve and of course they did but two that the only way they're going to get it is themselves 
The Lawrence's legal team had originally issued summons to four men, only adding Gary Dobson months later. But they could only gather sufficient evidence to take three of them to court. On the 18th of April 1996, the trial of Neil Acourt, Gary Dobson and Luke Knight began at the Old Bailey and drew national interest. There have already been anti-racist demonstrations connected to Stephen Lawrence's death. The family's bringing of what's only the fourth private prosecution for murder in England and Wales in 130 years is an indication of the strength of feeling in the wider black community. The prosecution alleged that this man, Neil Accord, arriving at the Old Bailey this morning, was part of that gang. The other accused are Luke Knight and Gary Dobson. All have pleaded not guilty. Alexandra Marie, the French au pair who by chance had witnessed Stephen's murder, was called as a witness in the private prosecution. In 1994, the year after the stabbing, she had left her native France for Reunion Island, a remote French territory in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Despite being more than 6,000 miles from London, Alex still found it hard to escape her horrific memories of the night Stephen was killed. I was scared of thinking about uh, Stephen. In fact, I was trying to avoid the subject. And in fact, each time I was trying to talk to some friends and I was saying, "Okay, I was the witness of a murder. So people were so shocked that I was uh, I just stopped talking about it. It was not conscious. I was um, somehow doing some drawings which were reminding, uh, I would say, uh, more echoing the murder. You sent me one of these sketches, evidently a drawing of Stephen's murder. It looked very dark, very introspective. When did you draw it and what was going through your mind at the time? I was um, with friends and we were um, in a kind of drawing club. And we were doing cartoons and drawings. And and one day I did this drawing and I didn't know where to come from in my mind. I wasn't really thinking about the murder because I, I, no, I just wanted to forget the murder. It was too disturbing. So the easiest for my brain was not to think about it. But it was still there. And that's, the drawing was a proof that it was still there and it was influencing my life. When did you first become aware that back in the UK, Stephen's family were about to take three men to trial? I was warned by the police that there was a private prosecution and I was asked to go there and give my testimony. So, of course, yes, I'll come. I mean, of course. Uh, and uh, um, all I wanted to say, because I, I, I felt that I couldn't help much it was that Stephen and Wayne were happy and peaceful and they were well they looked nice and they didn't deserve what happened and they did nothing to provoke the attack was it difficult giving evidence in that court case well you go through such an experience um at that time, I was young and I uh, was also, um, I felt like I was protected because I was not speaking directly. The translator was, I was speaking French and he was translating. So I felt it was easier for me. But uh, of course, I was very anxious and uh, 
uh, it was like um, a bad dream, really. And it's like, it's reality, but you can't realize it's reality. It's like you dis dissociate yourself. The frustration felt by the Lawrence family over the failure of the police and the CPS to bring Stephen's killers to justice was understandable. But was their private prosecution premature? Did their desire for justice push them into bringing the case too soon? There is a power the Crown Prosecution Service have, which is if they feel that um, there isn't enough evidence, they can take over the private prosecution and stop it altogether. In this case, I suspect I wasn't party to decision-making. It was probably thought as probably too controversial for the Crown Prosecutions to step in and stop this case. Former senior CPS lawyer Nazir Assel again. Even back in 94, 95, 96, the view of every legal professional I knew was that this private prosecution, whilst we clearly understood how the family felt and how the legal team supporting them felt, there was still not enough evidence. The whole point of a trial is to assess the quality of the evidence that's been obtained. And the view, certainly my view at that time, was that the private prosecution was premature and unnecessary at that time. It was doomed to fail. Just a week after the historic trial opened, the private prosecution against Lute Knight Neil Acourt and Gary Dobson collapsed. The judge, Mr Justice Curtis, ruled that identification evidence from Dwayne Brooks was inadmissible and instructed the jury to acquit all three men. The judge directed the jury to return not guilty verdicts. Identification evidence was ruled inadmissible and there was not enough other evidence to justify the prosecution. Stephen's dad, Neville Lawrence, gave his reaction after the case ended? Well, I believe in fairness, and um, I don't think what happened today is, is fair at all. Though the private prosecution raised the profile of the Lawrence case, there's no escaping the fact that it was a massive setback when the case was thrown out, because as the law stood then, it meant that the three accused could never face trial on the same charges again. The Lawrences had missed their one shot to see these men convicted. We had a principle of British law which existed until 2005, namely that if you have been tried by a court in relation to a specific offence and you have been found not guilty, then you can never be tried again. That is because we have a principle of certainty. Otherwise, you know, we could just keep taking you to court every year try a new jury. The idea was once you had one go, you have protection now by the law which prevents you from being prosecuted a second time. That was what they call the double jeopardy rule. Now, having prosecuted Dobson and the others, that was it. And on the face of it, once they had been acquitted by that jury, he could never be tried again for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And as subsequent events proved, that would have meant a murderer walking free without any consequence. The failed private prosecution marked a particularly low point in the Lawrence family's quest for justice. It had raised public interest in the case, but the bottom line was that in the eyes of the law, 
three key murder suspects had been declared innocent. What made this galling for the Lawrences and their supporters was that in December 1994, when they were in the early stages of preparing the ill-fated private prosecution, the Met had launched another investigation into Stephen's murder and had placed covert surveillance in the home of Gary Dobson. The footage exposed the horrific extent of the men's violence. Here, through a backdrop of loud music and the TV, Neil Acourt can be heard demonstrating to the rest of the gang how to skin someone's face. Go right in. But if you want to cut someone, just put that bit on their face and go... They can also be heard using extreme racist language. And at one stage, Norris spoke of his fantasy of massacring black people. Here, Neil Acourt can again be heard telling his sniggering friends, in words I won't repeat, what he would do to every person of colour and policeman if given the chance. Just 19 months earlier, Stephen Lawrence had been murdered in Eltham. But there was no sign of contrition from Dobson and his friends during the police surveillance operation. On display was not the casual racism which sadly polluted parts of society at the time, but an extreme and violent hatred of black people. In February 1997, there was another chance for the Lawrences to get some official recognition that Stephen was murdered by a gang of racist thugs. That month, an inquest into his death finally opened. The role of an inquest is to investigate the circumstances around how someone died, but they are not able to assign guilt for a death. There are many occasions on which if you can't get a criminal conviction, you get a finding of unlawful killing by an inquest or by a coroner's jury or by a coroner. That often provides a level of closure, a level of certainty which um, families get, which otherwise they wouldn't get. The five suspects originally named in the note left to police in the days that followed Stephen's murder were called to give evidence at the inquest. All of them refused to speak claiming legal privilege about self-incrimination. There's no requirement on people to give evidence. They can be compelled to do so, but even if they're compelled to do so, there's no reason why, once they're in the witness box, they have to tell the truth or even say anything at all, particularly if it will incriminate them. So inquests are a very, very useful tool, more often than not, but cases like this, they're quite often a blunt tool. It makes you think that somebody's guilty and you've, you've been able to show that they're responsible but then there's no consequence at all. On February the 13th, 1997, the inquest jury delivered a verdict of unlawful killing. At the inquest, the five suspects refused to answer questions. It's taken nearly four years for his family to get an official declaration that what happened here that night was an unprovoked racist attack by five white youths. Though their attitude towards the murder investigation and refusal to give evidence later led to this violent demonstration of the public anger against them. The refusal of the five men to answer questions at the inquest 
and the swaggering manner in which they behaved enraged the British public. It was an actual affront to our system. It was an affront to our justice system. I generally think a lot of people felt, you know, they are just laughing. They are laughing at us. They are actually laughing at the police force. They are laughing at the criminal justice system. They're laughing at society, really. And I think that that was a defining moment in the country's criminal justice history. Their arrogance. I'm just talking to you right now, actually. I can see them, how arrogantly they were walking through the crowds and literally not giving a damn as to what people thought of what they had done. And you know, if anything, that fired me up. It certainly fired the police up and it certainly fired the Daily Mail up and others to ensure that these people were somehow brought to justice. It was two fingers up to everybody who wanted justice. It was that, that sense that they felt that they were above the law. They felt, that's it, you've had a go. We are now untouchable. Public outrage at the arrogant defiance of the five prime suspects was at fever pitch, and this sense of injustice reached the offices of the Daily Mail, which a day after the inquest concluded ran a historic front page branding the men murderers and challenging them to sue the newspaper if it was wrong. It was a highly controversial move which prompted allegations of trial by media. Eddie Young was the group legal advisor of Associated Newspapers, which included the Daily Mail, and played a key role in the decision to run the front page on February the 14th, 1997. Eddie, when did you learn that this front page was a possibility? I first became aware at about two o'clock in the afternoon when I was alerted in my office by John Stiefel, who I think was the news editor at the time. And he came to me, as I said, at about two o'clock and said that the editor, or the boss as he called him, was thinking of doing a headline in which we would accuse these five kids of being murderers. And what was your reaction to that? I mean, it's obviously even then an extraordinary idea to even contemplate it was i'd been keeping up with the developments in the story not terribly closely but i knew what was going on just like everybody else and i'd seen the scene the day before of the inquest and the aftermath of the inquest when the boys came out and they were shouting and fighting with the crowd so i knew the background and obviously i knew the background i knew about the stephen lawrence murder but when i was told about this headline i thought you know that sounds sounds pretty damaging as as of course they hadn't been charged with anything at the time and i said to john okay well if we're going to go along with that i need to have all the material we've got before i could you know feel comfortable about saying okay to that by that stage three of the accused had already been cleared of murder in a court of law so you were being asked to make a legal judgment on not only calling five young men murderers, but three of them had already been acquitted, rightly or wrongly. That's right. They were acquitted on the grounds that there was no reasonable evidence on which the prosecution could succeed. And, I mean, that was obviously a factor I had to take into account. I couldn't possibly prove in one afternoon, with all the material that I was going to get, I couldn't possibly prove what the state had failed to prove, having had months or years to prosecute. All I could do was 
hope to get as much information as possible, which would make me comfortable to think I could defend that sort of headline. And if I didn't get that sort of information, I'd have said, well, you know, we can't do it. I mean, it's much too much of a risk. So that was that was that was the thinking. And that was before I'd seen the vast amount of material that the news desk provided throughout the afternoon, which I sort of was going through. I'd seen the video of the uh, the boys performing in what they thought was a private room in one of their houses, uh, which was clearly a very racist video and showed them for what they were. I also knew about some of the background history of the boys, some of whom had previous convictions. So with that, as I said, I was getting this information fed to me during the afternoon. And by six o'clock, I think, I had a lot of information, which I didn't know actually know before. And I was becoming more and more comfortable during the afternoon that at the very worst, there were tremendous grounds for suspecting these people, even if in a court of law, I couldn't prove it that day that they were the murderers. And that was just in an afternoon. I thought, give me two months. You know, I could probably do better than the state with all this stuff. So was it by early evening that you felt comfortable that this was a situation which we could take forward as a paper? Well, yeah, but it wasn't just on that basis. As I said, I could never in an afternoon get to the stage where I could prove what the state had failed to prove before. But what I could do is just assess how the situation would pan out. And I assessed that the situation would pan out like this. At the very best, we would publish as requested by the editor and nothing would happen. So we get away with it, in quotes. The worst that can happen is we publish it and we get sued by each of the individuals. Now, if we were sued and for libel, we would have to, as I said, get close to the criminal standard of proof. But against that, we had a lot of evidence that they were racist thugs. We had a lot of evidence that they had no reputation, really, to lose. So the worst that could have happened is if they'd sued, how much money would they have got? And they would have also had to give evidence. They couldn't just behave like they did in the coroner's court and say, you know, I've I've been told to say nothing. They'd have to give evidence. And that was probably the last thing they ever wanted to do. My gut feel was that the five of them were guilty. I mean, that was everybody's gut feel. I know that's not good enough, but that was my gut feeling. And I thought these kids, these boys, are never going to give evidence. They never want to give evidence. They'll be totally screwed in the witness box. And they'll come out looking incredibly badly. And if it's a jury trial, which it probably would have been, I can't imagine a jury awarding them victory. And even if they awarded them victory, they wouldn't have awarded them much. And the publicity that the case would have got would have been overwhelming, I should think. So all those factors in taken into account, we were not dealing with people who are honest, upright citizens on the face of it. We were dealing with you know, five established racist thugs. And I assessed that even if we were wrong and we lost the libel action, it wouldn't cost us much in terms, it would cost us in costs, but um, it wouldn't cost us much in damages. That was my assessment at six o'clock in the evening. Listening to what you just said there, Eddie, I wish I'd known you were so confident at the time because I was asked to stay in the Daily Mail newsroom late that night. I was crime correspondent at the time. I knew quite a lot about the Lawrence case by then through my police contacts and legal sources. At about eight o'clock, I got called over to the back bench where the front page and the paper is put together. And I was asked three questions very publicly by the editor, Paul Dacre. 
I was asked, do the police believe they have a strong case against these five men? And did they do it? Then I was asked, do they have the money to sue? Do any of them have access to large amounts of money? And then the final question, do I think they would sue? I felt like I was a contestant on Mastermind, with the spotlight on me as the editor, deputy editor, head of news, night editor, and you looked on waiting for my replies. And as you would know, at about eight o'clock at night, that's not a time for tap dancing or saying, I'll get back to you, boss, later. I had to give firm advice. It was quite a dramatic moment because by then, the atmosphere in the newsroom was one of nervous excitement. I took a sharp intake of breath and said it was my understanding that the case against the suspects remained strong, that they were involved, and that only David Norris had access to any significant money, and I didn't think they would sue. I gave honest advice to the editor, but no one could really predict what was going to happen. And that was the bottom line, wasn't it? Would you say that running that front page was a gamble? It wasn't a gamble. It was a risk. It was a risk. I mean, there was a calculated, very well thought, I think, by me, very well thought out risk. And when I was called over to the back bench from my office, I was just shown this draft of this front page. And there were loads of people around. There was the, you know, the assistant editor, deputy editor, the news editor, you. And the editor said to me, what do you think? Held the thing up to me. He said, what do you think? So I said, I think it's OK. And then he said, well, why do you think it's OK? So I said, well, you know, it's, you know I've been through all this material. I've seen this. I've seen the video. And I reckon we can justify that. If push comes to shove, I think we can justify that. And I think it's worth it. I mean, these guys are, you know, in my opinion, 95% certain guilty, if not 100% guilty. And they behaved in such a way as to tell the world they are guilty and they couldn't care less because you can't prove it. The Daily Mail newsroom was a smoke-filled place in those days. And I'm sure a lot of nicotine was being consumed that night. I remember there was a late scare over whether we had properly identified a picture of one of the suspects. Did the editor ask you anything else, Eddie? He raised the question of contempt of court. Can I be sort of done for contempt of court? So I said, well, no, because there are no court proceedings present at the moment. So you can't be in contempt of court if the court's not involved, which it wasn't. So went through all those things. Then they all disappeared. You know, obviously I was hanging around and doing various other things. And then I remember the editor coming back and saying, OK, we're going with it. This was, must have been about 9 or 9.30. And I remember you then ringing somebody and saying, we're going to go with that front page. And that was it, really. I do recall, once I knew for certain we were going with the murderer's front page, I rang Imran Khan, the Lawrence family lawyer, on his mobile to tell him what we were doing. It was a phone call I will never forget because he was utterly shocked in a very positive way, about what we were doing. I think Imran knew then that this was going to make even bigger headlines. Our murderer's front page was going to make even bigger headlines and galvanise the family's campaign for justice, which is what it was all about, wasn't it, Eddie? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Helping them get justice. When I left the office that night, which probably was about 10 o'clock, I didn't really think, gosh, what have I done? I, I, I was pretty confident that... 
in fact, I was very confident that what I'd done was okay. And I mean, I obviously thought about it, but it didn't keep me awake at night. My emotions that night were not anything as bold as Eddie's. Yes, the buck would stop with the editor Paul Dacre for running the momentous, murderous front page. But those who advised him that unforgettable night in the Daily Mail newsroom were locked into the success or failure of his courageous decision. As I travelled home after a newspaper went to press, I reflected on the very public advice I had given him just before he made his mind up. I thought, what will happen if this goes wrong? Next time on Stephen Lawrence, the murder that shamed Britain. This inquiry will have full powers to compel the attendance of witnesses to give evidence under oath, and if they fail to do so, to punish them as if it were a contempt of court. Such is the emotion of this case, these men were never going to be able to leave quietly. A picture does tell a thousand words. And the behaviour of those thugs as they came away from the inquiry and started throwing punches just told you what kind of nasty individuals they were. The results of the McPherson report went to the heart of policing, calling the Metropolitan Force institutionally racist. As a veteran Metropolitan Police, it was painful for me to be sitting in that public inquiry. They almost to a person felt that they had been individually accused and found guilty of being racist. Some of them were brought to tears. The word racism just switches police officers off. Good police officers. You've been listening to Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain, with me, Stephen Wright.